Father, today as we come to this last chapter and the very last part of the last chapter of Revelation, Lord, and uh, we see that how it's just a perfect ending to a perfect book. And Father, I just uh, thank you for your presence in our study so far, and I ask you to be with us today as we as we look at the ending of this book, Lord, and we see that that it ends just as it begins uh, with your grace, Lord, uh, back in the Garden of Paradise where where you intended for us to be for eternity. And Lord, in, all in between, we've seen the story of your salvation and your redemption and your judgment. And uh, Lord, now as we look at the end, uh, help us to see just how perfect it is and, and how it's all about grace, the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. So Father, I just ask today that you bless our study and that you uh, bless it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today, if you'll be looking, we'll be picking up in verse number uh, 12. And we'll be looking at what I call the perfect ending to the perfect book. I believe the Revelation is the perfect book. I believe the whole Bible is the perfect book. And so I think God... In ended it the way he intended it to, to end it and he knows how to end the book you know I don't know about you but I, I, I one of the problems I have when I go to a movie or watch a TV show is they don't know how to end the thing I mean you, you know, a lot of movies they just they, they go on and on and on they seem, can't seem to end it so they have this big fight scene at the end and and there's all of these explosions and special effects and then and then they kill a few people off, and then the movie ends. And I think that takes away from the rest of the plot of the movie. Brendan and I like Gunsmoke, so we'll watch Gunsmoke every once in a while. And uh, They have some really good stories, but they don't know how to end them. I mean, so they go on for like an hour, and then when the hour's up, they just kill off the lead character, and they're done. And I mean, they do it every, almost every show. And so, so uh, it really messes up the rest of the story. But God does know how to end his story what we call history, it's his story. And he ends it in a perfect way because he is a perfect God. Let me show you that. Look in verse number 13 of chapter 22 and listen to what it says right there. It says, listen to how, what the Lord says about himself. As the author of the, this book of Revelation, as the author of the Bible, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And what is Jesus declaring himself? To be right there he's declared himself to be almighty God just as he did in chapter 1 as he added that title of almighty God to that these uh, three titles he gives himself here in verse number 13 and so he if he's God then he's in charge of all of history from the very beginning to the very end and that's what he's saying in these three titles that he gives himself right here first of all he says I'm the Alpha and the Omega. What's that? The Alpha is the, the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter in the Greek al alphabet. So what the Lord is saying there, that he represents all truth is in him. Every word is in him. Every letter of every word of truth is in him. And so he's in charge of all of history, every word of history, every letter of history. And not only is he the Alpha and the Omega, he is the beginning and the end. Uh, he is the perfect beginning and the perfect end of all history. Uh, that word beginning there is the Greek word protos. And again, I don't want to bore you with the Greek, but we see that same word 
over in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 18, where it says there that Jesus is the first over all creation. That means that he wrote the creation story. That means that he is the creator. And then it says there that he is the beginning and the end, and the word end there is the Greek word uh, eschatos. Now, what word do we get from that? Our English word eschatology, which is the study of end time of end time events, which is exactly what the book of Revelation is about. So who wrote all of Revelation? Everything that's, that's happening in Revelation that we've studied about in these past few months has been written by him. He is the author of the beginning, and he's the author of the end, and he's the author of everything in between because he is the first and he is the last. Now, those are two interesting wor words there, too. Uh, the first is the Greek word arche which we get our English word monarchy from. And he is a monarch. He is a despot. He's the sole ruler over history. He's the sole ruler over the creation. He's the sole ruler over the beginning. He's the sole ruler over the end. And he's also, he's the, he's the first and he's also the last. And that's the Greek word telos. And that means to perfect or to complete. And so Jesus is the completer of all things. He's the perfecter of all things. And so he's the, he completes all of history in a perfect way, and that's what we see in the book of Revelation. Now, I like to look at those titles right there that he gives us in verse number 13, and I like to apply those to my own life because he is the author of my life just like he's the author of all of history. And so he is the alpha of my life. He's the beginning of my life. I mean, the omega of my life. He's written all of my life, and he was there at the beginning. When I was born, when I came out of my mother's womb, Christ was there. At the end, when, my, when I breathe my last breath, he's going to be there. When eternity begins and he takes me to be in eternity with him, I'm going to be there because he's the beginning and the end, and he's the ruler over my life. He's the archae over my life, and he's the perfecter of my life. He's going to make me perfect in the end. All right, then uh, if he's doing all of that, and he's in charge of my life, and he's in charge of history, does that mean that uh, uh, we don't have free will? No, we have free will. Look at the next verse. Look at verse number 14. He says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Now, what is he saying right here? Is he saying here that the only way you're going to enter the gates of the new Jerusalem is to do his commandments? Is, is that what he's saying? Yes, that is what he's saying. But is he saying that we have to do those commandments in order to be saved? No, he's not saying that at all. We don't keep his commandments to get saved. We're not under law. We keep his commandments because we have been saved, because we've been, we've been given a new nature. And his commandments are part of that nature. They're part of who we are in Jesus Christ. John refers to that or gives uh, more detail about the fact that we still have our free will and we're to keep those commandments over in his letter in 1 John. So turn with me to 1 John. Uh, just back a few books and go to 1 John. And look in chapter number 2. And it, what John does in the book of 1 John, 
he, he basically tells you, if you doubt your salvation, you want to know whether or not you're saved, go to 1 John and read 1 John. You can figure out real quickly from 1 John whether or not you're truly saved, you're truly born again. And so that's what he's, he's trying to show the people, whether or not they're truly saved or whether, or whether, uh, whether they're truly saved or whether or not. So look what he says in verse number, number 2 of chapter 2. Actually, go to verse number 3 of chapter 2. He says in verse number 3 of chapter 2, he says, Now, by this we know that we know him. Now, what's it mean to know him? That means you're in a relationship with him. You've been saved by him. You're born again. So he says, now by, this we know, by, now, by this we know that we know him if we do what? If we keep his commandments. You don't get to know him by keeping his commandments, but you know that you know him by the fact that you keep his commandments. Look what he says in verse number four. He who says, I know him, I'm in a relationship with him, I'm saved, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But who, who's, whoever keeps his word, uh, his, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. In other words, you're being made perfect by him. If, if, if Christ saves you, he saves you to make you perfect. He saves you to sanctify you, to make you holy. And if there's no sign of you being holy, what John is saying is, you're not born again. But if you're being perfected by him, and you, now, you, are you perfect yet? No. But if you're in the process of being perfected by him, then you know that you're saved. He says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, that we are in Christ. We're truly saved. Now, here's the problem. In Galatians 5, Chapter 5, verse 17, it says that the flesh warth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so sometimes we're going to, you know, I, there's a lot of times when I question whether or not I'm saved by some of the things that I do, some of the things that I think, because I'm in constant battle with my flesh. I have a new nature that's been given to me that's perfect, but there's this battle going on between my flesh, my old nature and my new nature. You don't get rid of the new nature until you get perfected in heaven. But I know I'm being perfected. I know that the things that I don't want to do, I do, but the thing, and the things that I want to do, I don't do, but at least I know what I want to do. I know that I want to be righteous. I know that I want to be perfect in, uh, in the Lord. Well, one day when we get those glorified bodies, we're going to be perfect. We're going to be absolutely perfect because we're going to be filled with the life of God and we're going to be so perfect, going back to Revelation now, chapter uh, tw uh, 22, back to verse number uh, 13, I mean 14. Listen to what he says. Blessed are those who, who do his commandments be because at that point you will do his commandments. You, everything you do will be perfect that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter through the gates of the city. In other words, they're going to be able to enter through the gates of the city. Not everybody's going to be able to go into the new Jerusalem. Only those who are perfect can go into the presence of God. Now, you can enter the presence of God in prayer right now because you've been perfected by the Spirit of God. You've been given the new nature. You're precisionally perfect. You're not there practically yet, 
you're, you're getting closer, but you're not anywhere near as close as you're going to be to perfect, as, the, as perfect as you're going to be when you get to heaven. So everybody else is going to be outside. And listen to what he says in, outside those gates. Look at verse number 15. He says, but outside are the dogs. That's kind of a rough uh, uh, term to term those who are lost, but that's what he says. They're the dogs. And when you call somebody a dog in, in the Jewish culture, that was the worst thing you could call them. He says, <laughs> right. So, but outside are the dogs and the sor- and he describes those dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Those people, do, their names have been written out of the book of life. We, we, we'll see that here in just a few minutes. And so their, their story, uh, their part is not in the New Jerusalem and in eternity. Their part is in, uh, in the lake of fire. Now, why does, I mean, why does Jesus choose to use this term dogs to refer to the lost? Because they choose not to live like the children of God. They choose to live like animals. And so instead of drinking of the grace of life, the life of God, their part is in the lake of fire, and uh, uh, so they won't enter into the uh, new Jerusalem. Now, that's a pretty rough thing to call lost people, a dog. But I like what uh, Vance Ebner says, that people are actually... uh, in this age we live in, they're worse than dogs. He says, he says this, he says, I quit saying that uh, people have gone to the dogs out of respect of, of dogs. Uh, and that's how bad it's gotten. Uh, verse number 16, listen to what he says. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And listen to what he says. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. What a beautiful title there. Now, look at what he says in the first part of this verse. And I hear so many preachers over the years, I've heard preachers say, you know, I'm not going to go into the book of Revelation. Uh, it's just too complicated. It's going to confuse the people. Uh, and we'll just wait till the end and see how things work out. Well, look at the purpose of this book. Jesus says, I have sent my messenger, the angel, to testify to you these things where? Just to some special elite people? No, in all the churches, in all the churches for all ages. And so the, the book of Revelation isn't just for a few select few who, who supposedly can understand this. This was written to everybody in the church. So if you're part of the church, the book of Revelation is written for you to understand. As I said last week, you're not going to understand every word of it but you can understand most of it by the Spirit of God. And Jesus himself knows we can understand it because not only is he the Alpha and the Omega and Almighty God, he is and the root of David, which means he's the creator of David, he's also the offspring of David. And so that what he's, what he's telling us there is that he can relate to humanity. He knows what we can understand and what we can't understand, and so he has written these things to the churches, and we ought to be able to understand those things because he is the offspring of David, and he's written them. He's a human himself, and so he's written these things for us to understand. And not only that, he is the bright and morning star. Now, what's he saying by that? 
He's saying that, that he is the dawn of a new age, of a new hope, of a kingdom of this bright light. I mean, this physical light uh, that we see in Revelation represented by our, our, that, that represents his Shekinah glory, but it's also a spiritual light. I mean, whenever you're filled with the light of God, what comes along with that? You're filled with joy. You're filled with, you're filled with peace. I mean, when I'm in the presence of God and I'm filled with the presence of God, I feel righteous. That's the only time I really feel righteous. But when he's given me his righteousness by his spirit, I actually feel righteous. I feel that light of God. I mean, I, I feel truth. Truth is in the light of God. And most importantly, when we feel when we are uh, in, encompassed by that light of God, we feel love. And in heaven, I mean, he's the bright morning star, and what we see now is the dawn of that age, but in, in, uh, uh, when we get to eternity, it will be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we will have perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect truth, perfect righteousness, and perfect love. And who's it for? Like I said, it's not just for a select few. It's for anybody. Look at verse number 17. Look at the requirements. You want that light of God? How do you get it? Look at verse number 17. And the spirit and the bride say, what do you got to do? Come. Come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirst. You thirst for righteousness? You thirst for truth? You thirst for peace? You thirst for joy? How do you get it? You just come. You come and you let him, who, let him who thirst come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Now, there's a lesson for the church right here. Because who's he speaking? Who's speaking these words come? And the spirit and the bride, who's the bride? The church. What, what do they say? They say come. Who are they speaking to? They're speaking to the people in the world who are not saved as of yet. And what's our message? Our message is simply to come. Uh, we complicate that message way too often. I mean, our message isn't about pointing out people's sins. Our message isn't about condemning other people. Our message is a very simple message. Our message is come. Come to who? Come to Jesus Christ. Come to that fountain of living water. Drink of his spirit. That's, that's the message of the church. That's exactly what Paul said over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Flip back there for a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Back towards the first of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see how he starts this verse out in verse number 18. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. He says, a real profound statement right here. He says, now all things are of God. All things. What's all things mean in the Greek? All things. They're of God. And he's talking and speaking now in the context of salvation. It's all of God. Salvation is all of God. And so he says, he goes on to say, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And now we've been reconciled, and we're born again. We're the bride. What's our message? He, or what's our mission? And he has given us, every single one of us, 
A ministry of condemnation. Is that what it says there? A ministry of reconciliation. He's given the bride a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation with who? We're already reconciled with God. Reconciliation with others outside the church. That's our ministry to get them reconciled with God just as we're reconciled with God. So he's given us a ministry of reconciliation, not condemnation. And he says in verse number 19, that is that God was in Christ. Here's the message. Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. See, too often what we want to do, we want to impute trespasses to people. We're real quick to show people their sins. We want to say, hey, this is, you fix this. You need to fix this and then come to Christ. That's not, that's not how you get saved. You come to Christ. What's the message of the bride? To come. You go to a, a drunkard and you fix his drunkenness. I mean, you haven't, you haven't fixed him, have you? I mean, you've only, you've only fixed the surface issue. And so you can go to a drunkard and you can say, quit drinking. You need to quit drinking. You're going to hell if you don't quit drinking. Well, let's say he does quit drinking. You scare him and he quits drinking. Well, that, that still doesn't fix him. There's a, there's a lot of sin in his life that's more than likely causing him or her to drink. And so we can't fix those things. They're, they're too deep-rooted. There's too many of them. I mean, I don't know about you. Now, I had some major sins in my life before I got saved. But, hey, you could have gotten rid of my major sins and then there would have been a plethora of other sins there you could have worked on too. You can't fix your sin. All you can do is come to Christ who can fix your sin. So it says not imputing their trespasses to them. That's, that's the only way we can make it into heaven. We got to have our, our sin paid for. And he's committed to us a word of reconciliation, not condemnation. And then he goes on. Now, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. What we're to do, all we're to do is to plead with people. You've got a relative that's lost. Don't try to fix what's wrong with them. Don't try to fix their sin. You plead with them. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, come. Come and be reconciled to God. How do you get reconciled to God? You don't fix your sin. You come. You simply come. How does it work like that? Look at verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how you get fixed. You got to have the, who's outside? Idolaters, liars, uh, drunkards, uh, Gamblers, I can give you a list of people. We go on and on and on and on. How do you fix them? You don't, you don't fix them by, get, by, by trying to fix all their sin. You can't do it. They, only, the only people that will be able to enter the gates of the new Jerusalem are those who are absolutely perfect. They have no sin whatsoever. And there's only one place you can have your sin cleansed. There's only one way you can have your soul fixed. And that's to come to Jesus Christ. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have or might become the righteousness of God in him. Just imagine that. I mean, you can't become the righteousness of God unless you come 
to Jesus Christ, and he gives you that righteousness. Now look at verse number 18, back to Revelation chapter 22. And what he does in 18, he's going to give us a warning about messing with the content of this book. You don't want to mess with it. Listen to what he says. He says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If you look at this book in any way, you better not mess with it. You're better off not reading it. Now, there's a blessing, we're told, for reading and studying the book of Revelation. You're going to be blessed. But you better not mess with it when you come to it. You better not mess with it in any way. He says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things. Now, can you imagine the nerve? Who wrote this book? The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, Almighty God. He wrote this book. I mean, John actually penned it, but he penned it based upon what God showed him, and he penned it filled with the Spirit of God. And so, really, God wrote this book. And so, when I hear somebody messing with this book, now, there's times you've got to come to places in the book, you've got to say, and I don't like saying it, but you've got to say, I just don't know what this means. I'll figure it out the next time I come through. Or maybe the night time after that. But you better not mess with it. You better not start doctoring this thing up and making it say what you want it to say. There's a real danger right here. Listen to what he says. If anyone asks to these things, they got the nerve to do it, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. In other words, you're going to go to hell. If you mess with this book, you're going to go to hell. What are the plagues of this book? Eternal fire, everlasting damnation, destruction, the great tribulation. You're going to go into the great tribulation. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of, of this prophecy, God will take away from his part in the book of life. That's pretty scary stuff. From the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. All the good things that you look forward to when you read Revelation, you won't have any part of those things if you add or take away from this book. Now, first of all, there's an issue here that we need to address. I mean, he says that he will, he will take away his part in the book of life. Now, wait a minute. Didn't I say that the, your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world and you, it never can be taken out? Didn't I say that? No, I didn't say that. I said your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. There are two books. There is the book of life, and there is the Lamb's book of life. That's what, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. Everybody born into this world, is, their name is in the book of life. And then when they sin the first time, and the second time, the third time, whatever point God does it, their names get blotted out. But if you've been chosen in Christ to receive Christ, your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you will never be taken out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, back to the reason he gives here for being taken out of the Book of Life, not the Lamb's Book of Life. Because if you're in the Lamb's book of life, you're not going to mistreat God's word. This warning, I think, 
you probably have heard it before. People use it all the time in context or in reference to the rest of the Bible. In other words, if you add to the rest of the Bible or you take away from, you, you know, somebody might be in Genesis and teach it through Genesis and they'll say, look, if you add anything to that or you've got a heresy about Genesis, then you're going to be cursed. And they go to this passage in Revelation to prove that. What is, what is the Lord saying right here in verses 15, I mean in verses 18 uh, and 19? He, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of this prophecy, of this book. So he's speaking of the book of Revelation. Now, I certainly believe that you're making a mistake if you enter into heresy in any part of the, in any, in any teaching of the Bible. I mean, I, if, you, if, you, if you misinterpret it, you're in danger of hellfire. I really believe that. But if you start using passages like this to back up your belief that the Bible shouldn't be tinkered with, then you're doing the same thing heretics do. A good hermeneutic says that you take a passage in context and you leave it in its context. This is in the context of Revelation. It's not meant to be used for the rest of the Bible. Now the principle's there, granted. But be careful you don't engage in the same thing that heretics do and you take scripture out of context and use it to prove other, other things that you believe. That's the wrong, you can prove that, but that's the wrong scripture to prove it with is what I'm trying to say right there. Now, so the warning that we get right here is clearly applies to Revelation. And what he's saying in this warning in verse number 18 and 19, he's saying that we're not to mess with his book, the book of Revelation. There's several ways you can mess with this book. You can put it on a shelf, and that's messing with this book, and never read it because it was meant to be read by the churches. Are uh, uh, are you tamper with its intended meaning? Uh, and uh, a lot of people do that. What is this book? This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Almighty God. It's a prophecy about His coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's the description of the great hope that we have for a future in Jesus Christ. And it also tells us about a judgment in hell for those who reject Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. So when somebody tells me that they don't believe that Jesus is God, what have they done? They have taken away from this book. And they're in danger of hellfire. People say everybody's going to go to heaven. Uh, and, and somebody comes along and says Jesus is not God. I'll tell you right now, they're not going to go to heaven. I mean, you can, you can get that from this, this, this verses 18 and 19 because Revelation over and over again declares that Jesus is God. And so if you say Jesus is not God, then you've taken away from this book. If somebody tells you, and you hear this all the time in Christendom now, that there is no hell. They're, they're taken away from Revelation because we're at least five times in Revelation, hell is spoken of in very uh, clear terms. That is a place of everlasting fire. It's the place of the Antichrist. It's the place of the devil. It's a place where there is no rest. It's a place of eternal torment. And when you say there, it's, there's no such thing as hell, you're taking away from this prophecy and you're endangering yourself and you more than likely will end up in hellfire 
And, and there's all sorts of theologians doing that. People who don't believe in a literal second coming. They're not reading Revelation because in Revelation we clearly get a literal second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all over the Bible, by the way. And so when people say they don't believe in a literal second coming of Jesus Christ, they're taken away uh, from uh, not only this prophecy but from the whole Bible. People who say there's no millennium. The Bible clearly teaches that there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. So when a preterist tells you that all of these events in Revelation took place in the first century, they're adding an interpretation that's not there. When I hear that, and I have friends that believe that, I'll cringe because if what, if what John says here in uh, verses 18 and 19 is true, then they're in danger of hellfire. And I believe what he says in verses 18 and 19 is true. If I can't believe 18 and 19 is true, then I can't believe the rest of Revelation is true. But I can't believe that Revelation is true, then what do I believe about Mark or Genesis or any of the other books? So a preterist is adding an interpretation that's not there. A universalist who says everyone's going to heaven. Everyone's going to heaven and nobody's uh, going to hell. Everybody's going to make it into heaven. I mean, just look at the verse that we just looked at. Uh, he says, outside, verse 15, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. So none of them are making it into heaven. If, if universalism is true, then John's a liar. And so when somebody believes in universalism, they're taking away from this book and they're adding their own interpretation and they're in danger of hellfire. Annihilationists, the same way. You know, I tend to want to be an annihilationist. I, I, I tend to think, you know, a merciful God is certainly not going to allow people to suffer forever and ever in hell. Well, I'm, God is also just and so I don't, I can't, all I have to, what I have to believe is what God gives me in his Bible, his revelation. And we get a lot about hell, and as I said earlier, in the book of Revelation. And so, so uh, you know, I can't be an annihilationist. I wish I could sometime. I, you know, I, I, I have relatives, you know, that probably will, that have died lost. Some others that probably will die lost. And they're going to go to hell, according to this book. But... You know, that's, I, I, I'm sorry, but that's, that's going to happen. Now, so, let's go to verse 20. I will skip that. I hate, I hate talking about hell. Verse number 20. He says, he who testifies of these things, Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. And what's our response? Oh, Lord, please don't come today. Uh, Lord, put that off a while. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, you know, I'm not ready yet. Whatever. No, he who testifies of these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. And what is our response? Amen. Amen. So be it. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's, I don't know how many times, I think at least three times. I think it's three times in this chapter alone, Jesus has said that he's coming quickly. Now, when he says he's coming quickly, that means he's coming quickly. 
That means he's coming sooner than we think. Some people say what he's saying right there is that just when these events start unfolding, they're going to unfold very quickly. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the judge is at the door. I mean, Paul said it. James said it. They all said it. He's coming quickly. The Lord is at hand. In other words, he's as close to your hand. He could be here in the blink of an eye. He could be here for his church in the blink of an eye. The great tribulation could begin just like that. Now, what makes this so interesting is I believe that Jesus is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He knows all of the future. Now, if he's omniscient, why would he tell John 2,000 years ago that I'm coming quickly? Well, some people would say the reason he said that because a day to the Lord is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years like a, you know, uh, whatever. A day is like a, a 1,000 years is like a day to the Lord. And, and so that's, that would be quick to him. But no, he's telling John, I'm coming quickly. So, so knowing that he wasn't coming for at least 2,000 years, why did he tell John he was coming quickly? Well, death is the great equalizer when it comes to time. I don't know if I can explain this or not, but, but when you die, this is we know for, to be true. When you die, you come out of time and you go into eternity. John was on the island of Patmos when he wrote this book. And he was 100 years old and he was about to die. And when John died and he went to heaven, you know who was there? I was there. And you were there. Because when John died, he came out of time. And he went into eternity. And so when John died, he found himself present with the rest of the raptured church, the rest of the saints who had died before the rapture, and with even the tribulation saints. And that's why way back in chapter 5 and chapter 7, he could write about that experience. uh, Because he went into eternity when he went to heaven. And he saw, I probably could see himself already there. Because when you die, you go to the ever-present now. You go into eternity. Now, if you don't understand that, come up to me after church and I'll explain it to you. No, you can't understand that. You have a finite mind. Some of you have a very, no, I was, that's a joke. (laughs) None of you. I know people that have a very finite mind. More finite than others, but mine's pretty finite. We have finite minds. And we're not going to understand that. But let me tell you this. Death is the great equalizer. You say, well, the tribulation might not happen. I hear people say, well, it might not happen for 200 years. I personally believe it might be, you know, as long as that. I don't think it will be, but it it could be. I personally believe that. It could go as long as 200 more years. So, but I'm not going to go 200 more years. Some of you think I'm already 200 years old. I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to go many more years. And so the Lord is coming quickly. From my standpoint, he's coming very quickly. And graves come in all sizes, so from from your standpoint, he might be coming very quickly too. And so what he's saying there, be ready because he's coming very quickly. All right, now, we come to the last verse. The last verse of the last chapter of the last book in the Bible. 
And if this last chapter, which I believe it is, is the perfect ending to the perfect book, then this last verse is the perfect ending to the perfect ending of the perfect book. And I believe it is. I believe it's the perfect ending of the entire Bible. Because it has one word there that defines what the Bible is all about. One word. What's that word? Grace. He says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The whole story that God has written, history, his story, it is all about grace. It is a story of grace. Go back to the creation. Did God have to create this universe? No, he, did, he created this universe not only to bless himself, but to bless you. He created you. He gave you life. What a blessing. He formed the nation of Israel by grace. He didn't have to form the nation of Israel. In fact, there were times he wished he hadn't. Several times. Just like there's times he wished he hadn't created me, there's times he wished he hadn't created Israel. I mean, they were a bunch of bullheaded people, but he created them by grace, for grace, so that he could, through the Israel, he could send forth a Messiah who by grace would come to this earth and give himself for our sins by grace. And by grace, he's given you and I the faith to believe in him. We've been saved by grace through faith. And that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God by grace. And this great future, this eschatos, this last thing that we see here in uh, the end that we see here in uh, Revelation, all of this is grace. Even the judgment of the wicked is grace. Even hell is grace. Now, I can't explain that. That's why I do believe in hell. I believe it is grace. God created us to be eternal souls, and, and people, the longer they live, the worse they get, it seems. And the worse they, things they do to others. And the worst people they raise, the worst children they bear and bring into this world. And so by grace, God at some point is going to end it all. And by grace, he's going to give us a glorious future beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And I look at this last chapter, this last verse of the Bible, and it doesn't say, you better do this, you better do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. How does it all end? It ends by simply saying the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. The grace, be with, may it be with you all. See, that's the message of Revelation. That's the message of the whole Bible. It's grace. Grace throughout life, throughout history, throughout eternity. You remember what the angel said in Revelation 19.10? He said, the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Grace. Je Jesus Christ, when you think of Jesus Christ, you think of grace. 
You see those nail-scarred hands and you see those nail-scarred feet in eternity and all you're going to be able to think about is grace. It's grace. And he says in Revelation 19, 10, the testimony of Jesus Christ, grace, is the spirit of prophecy. That's what prophecy is all about. It's about grace. And how do you get that grace? You simply come. You simply come. Verse 17, and the spirit of the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Let him come. Let him come to the greatest future, a future more wonderful than you can possibly imagine, and it's all by grace. Listen to what Charles Hedgen Spurgeon says about your future in Christ. He says, when Christ receives his people into heaven, he will touch them with a wand of his own love and change them into the image of his manifest, manifested glory. They were poor and wretched, but what a transformation is going to take place. They were stained with sin, but one touch of his finger, and they are bright as the sun, bright as the morning star, and clear as crystal. Oh, what a manifestation. All this proceeds from the exalted lamb by grace. All of it by grace. Whatever there may be of splendor, Jesus shall be the center and soul of it all. And he goes on, he says, Oh, to be present and to see him in his own light, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All of it by grace. And I don't know about you, but I want to be there. Well, wait a minute. What, I mean, aren't we supposed to be ready? Aren't we supposed to be watching? Uh, aren't we supposed to have our lamps filled? I mean, aren't there all these exhortations that we're supposed to do something to get ready? All of that comes by grace, too. If you're truly saved by grace, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's the, that's the oil you need for your lamp. And if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, and you love Jesus Christ, you're going to long for his appearing. Paul said, there's a crown laid up for me, a crown of righteousness and glory that awaits me and all those who long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. And who was he speaking of? He was speaking of the entire church. I don't have any problem waiting. I don't have any problem watching. I don't have any problem longing. Because I, lo I love the Lord. And God has saved me by his grace. And I can't wait for the eternity he has in store for all of those who love him. So let's close with those words that he gives us there in verse 21. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen? Amen. So be it.